We've been in this series called Trust the Process, and, uh, and as we've been walking through this series, I, I jokingly said I named it Trust the Process because I heard that a, a basketball player had uh, trademarked that slogan or was trying to, and I wanted to use it before I had to pay uh, royalties. <laughs> and, so, and so we're uh, using that idea of Trust the Process, and we've been having this conversation about what happens in the in-between when you know God's moving and you know God spoke, um, but it's not happened yet, and you're waiting for uh, the answer that God, you know wants to and will provide, and we've been on kind of this journey having this conversation, and today um, I'm just calling this message In and Out, um, partly because uh, it is uh, just a place of uh, happiness and joy in my life, In and Out, uh, but also because, <laughs> because I want to have a conversation about what's inside of us that comes out of us. You know, it's hard when we're in the middle of the process and it sometimes seems like things aren't making sense and we're not sure what God's doing. I was, I was thinking about back in the day when I first started uh, doing ministry, I, I always had another job. I've, most of my ministry life, I've had another job simultaneous to doing ministry. And I was working at a uh, Hollywood video. So um, if you're a millennial, you can Google that. I think uh, we used to actually have to go into buildings and walk around and, and rent tapes, tapes that you had to rewind before you brought back or else you'd pay a fee, right? And if you lost them, even though they only cost like 12 bucks at Walmart, you had to pay like 58 bucks for the one you lost, right? It was insane. But it was a great job for a youth pastor uh, because every week I would have a video illustration because I could get videos for free. And even though we didn't have a lot of uh, money, we watched a lot of movies in that season. And I was thinking about that season of my life. And there was a movie that I watched um, way back. And I don't remember uh, a lot about the movie, but, uh, but it was about Shakespeare and plays. And, and, uh, and anyways, there was a cast and they were trying to put on a play. And everything was falling apart. Their lead actor was missing. They lost the building. Nothing was happening according to plan. And finally, in frustration, they just said, how is this possibly going to work out? And kind of the leader of the, of the group says, I don't know. It's a mystery. And isn't it true sometimes on our journey with God, we look around, and from our viewpoint, we're never quite sure, how is this going to work out? How is this going to work out in my family? How's this job situation going to work out? How's this relational thing? How is it going to work out? And it feels like the best answer we have is, I don't know. It's a mystery. And sometimes we come to the conclusion that the God of the universe, who still has, come on now, the whole world in his hands, is in control despite the evidence that we see with our eyes that is twisting us up and getting us confused. And so I don't know how we always handle it when we don't know. I was thinking about this idea of being in the journey and, and the pressure of the thing that's on the inside really counts when the pressure comes on. The first car I ever owned was a Glorious. It was a 1986 Chevy Sprint, three cylinders. Um, and I'm going to be honest uh, and vulnerable men, I know nothing about cars. I am not a car guy. Uh, I don't have a car skill set. Uh, my stepdad was a car guy, and he was mean, and so I didn't want to be around car guys. And so I know nothing about cars. And my cousin gave me this 1986 Chevy Sprint. It was red. Uh, it was like a hatchback. And uh, it had a, a sunroof that didn't work. Um, and he told me the odometer had rolled over two times already, which meant it was working its way towards 300,000 miles. I think it had the original tires on it. 
<laughs> they were just so bald, right? And I remember someone telling me, hey, you're gonna need to put tires on there. And I was like, oh, awesome, I'll do that. And we took it to a tire place and you know, I had a job, I was working at Safeway, I had making good money for a 16 year old kid and I put my own tire, you know, 110 bucks or whatever to put four tires on this little car. And, uh, and I started driving it, it was a stick shift and I didn't know how to drive a stick, but I wasn't gonna be asking for help. So I just went out there and grinded that thing <laughs> until I figured it out. And I started figuring it out. And we're driving around. And then one day, the car just dies. Smoke's kind of coming out. I've only had it for about five or six weeks. My tires are like, come on, brand new. And I'm stuck. And I roll off to the side of the road, and it dies. And uh, this is in the pre-cell phone era. So I got to walk to go call my dad at a pay phone. And he asked me a question. He goes, have you checked the oil? in that car yet? And I was like, they put oil in cars? I thought oil is what made gasoline. <laughs> Again, I'm not a car guy, okay? <laughs> it never occurred to me that what was on the inside was just as or more important than what was on the outside. I could see tires, so I put tires on there, but it didn't occur to me that what was on the inside also mattered. And so while that poor, rest in peace, 1986 Chevy Sprint uh, went to the great car boneyard in the sky, I learned a valuable lesson. Taking the temperature of the inside and managing the inside is critically important to making it the distance. And so it's an interesting tension that we have when we try to figure out how do we make it when we're not totally sure what God is doing? And some people will tell you this, just fake it till you make it. And I like the idea of that on the surface. Fake it till I make it. Fake it till I'm not sure what God's doing. I'm just going to put on a fake smile and I'm just going to try to fake it until I make it. But here's the problem. What happens when you can't fake it? What happens when the pressure's on and the squeeze is on? What happens when you can't fake it anymore? And the real you and your real position and your real heart comes out. I uh, called this week in and out because I do want to talk about what's on the inside of us because I do believe it will come out. The very first interview I ever had in ministry was to be an intern. And uh, I was asking if I could come and work for free and they said no. That's how well I interviewed back then. And uh, it was my home church, so that was especially special. <laughs> they said, we knew high school Mike, and that was enough. Um, long story short, in the middle of that interview, the person facilitating the interview asked me a question that's never kind of left my mind when I think about what's on the inside of me. And he framed it this way. He said, when you squeeze a lemon, you get lemonade. What happens when life squeezes you? He said, Mike, who are you on the inside? What is the evidence of your character and of your heart? What have you filled your life up with? Because whatever it is, when the pressure and the squeeze of life happens, you can't fake that. When you're feeling the pressure of life, the true nature of your heart will come out. Jesus said this way, he said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. That the good person brings up goodness of the goodness stored in the heart. And the wicked person brings up wickedness out of the wickedness stored in their heart. There is a place in the inside of you that you are either feeding with something that's life-giving, helpful, essential, and will demonstrate itself under pressure, or there's something else. 
couple weeks ago, I joked, but I can't get away from the joke. You want to know what's on the inside of you, the first sign of pressure, just let someone cut you off on Meridian. (laughs) Just let someone cut you off and then slow down at a yellow light and you miss a light in the flow. That's a very comical and simple squeeze, right? And we face that squeeze every day. And I wonder if I was just a little fly on the wall on the inside of your car, what would come streaming out of you in that moment? And I say that as a person who the Lord is not done working on yet. Come on, church. (laughs) But we recognize there is an inner man. There is an inner woman. There is a dialogue and a heart that's happening on the inside. And you're either feeding that with life-giving truth and reality or something else. And the pressure points of your life will demonstrate and overflow the truth of what's on the inside. And when you're in the in-between, when you're in the season between when you know God's going to do something and it hasn't happened yet, that entire season is a squeeze. And God works on us in those seasons, and he draws things out of us to give us a reality about who we are and where he wants to take us. And it's critically important in those seasons that we're aware and learning and listening to the Holy Spirit as he teaches us about who is on the inside. Let me make this suggestion this morning, and, uh, and, and for time's sake, I'm going to move right along, but I just want to make this suggestion this morning that the best defense is a good offense. If you want to have a healthy inner person, a healthy inner dialogue, if you want to be authentic in your heart, it's going to take intentional offensive strategy. It's not going to just happen by accident. All right? It's not going to just be, hey, when the pressure's on, I think I'm going to be okay. It's going to be because you have filled your heart and your life with some truth. Let's pick up our story. We've been walking through kind of the life of of David, young David, moving towards King David. And uh, we kind of jumped into this on Mother's Day, having a conversation about Hannah and uh, her commitment, uh, even though she was facing pressure uh, when God blessed her to give her son Samuel to the ministry of God. Samuel's the last prophet slash judge um, in Israel's history. And he's the one who gets the, uh, the job assignment of anointing the first king. That first king is Saul. And they pick Saul because he's good looking and tall. Um, Saul has a very humble background. He's not from a major tribe. He's not uh, in, uh, inherently popular. And the popularity and the love and adoration of the people corrupts the inner heart of Saul. And he fails time and time again uh, to live consistently. And the, the pressure of people constantly moves him off the will of God. And we had a conversation about that. And so God moves on and the anointing moves to David. And David's a fascinating character in scripture because all of us know, you know, some of the stories of David. And we know this sentence in the scripture that's such a powerful sentence that David was a man after God's own heart. But if you take a, just an a overview look at the life and the decisions and the choices of David, you'll see that time and time again, David struggled with some essential common moral things. And so last week we talked about this pressure of, of what's on the inside of us is different than just all the behaviors and actions that we do. Because if you compare Saul's life and David's life, it's not even close. It's not even close. Saul had not nearly the mistakes in his life that David had, but David had a repentant heart that was humbled before the God, before God, and consistently came back to the Lord over the praise and adoration of men. And that was kind of the journey that we've been on. And so now we find David, 
And uh, he has been anointed by Samuel at a very young age, somewhere between age 8 and 15, to be the next leader of Israel. And after that, he has to go back and keep on tending sheep. While he's tending sheep, he's become quite the lyrist, harp and lyre, playing music and developing a heart to worship God. As a result, Saul, who's looking for some therapy, uh, ends up calling David into the court to play music for him as he is dealing with the combination of spiritual battles and, and uh, mental breakdowns, essentially. So David is now playing music for the king. He went from a shepherd boy, seventh son, not of any really high account, to a place in the courtroom of the king playing music. It says Saul actually made him an armor bearer, so he got to carry Saul's armor and protect kind of the back of the king. And as that's happening, he still has to go home to his father's house and tend sheep. A battle breaks out and the Philistines have come and, and we know the story, Goliath is there. He's standing on the precipice of this cavern and he's shouting down at the, at the armies of God, basically saying, you chicken littles. Yeah, where'd your head go? You chicken littles, I dare you to come and fight me. Raise up a man and battle me and none of you will. And, and, the, and the armies of God would daily kind of like hype themselves up. We got this, we got this, we got this. Then they'd go to the battlefield and they'd see Goliath and they're like, no. And then they'd back off. And that was kind of the cycle that's been going on. And, and this standoff has happened between these two armies, neither wanting to kind of go into the valley first and give up the high ground and the advantageous position that their army is. So these two armies are just camped facing each other daily. And David... Now that he has been a armor bearer to the king, a musician who, uh, who God has used to, uh, to soothe the mind and, and the spiritual battles that the king is going through, uh, he's back to being a shepherd. And his dad's like, can you do a lunch run for your brothers who are old enough to be in the battle? Now he's an errand boy. He shows up at the battlefield and he's bringing a sack lunch for his brothers and he sees this interaction between Goliath and the people of God. And he says, hey, I I'm not having that. And he goes to Saul, who he knows because he's been playing harp for him. And he's like, I've got you. I'll be the one who does it. And Saul says, you're just a babe compared to this warrior. You grew up with sheep and he grew up fighting battles. You're like up to his armpit maybe. There's no reason for you to be the one. And then we pick up in verse 37. And this is where we closed last week with David's response. And he says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Saul said to David, then go and the Lord be with you. And we talked about the battles that you fight in the meantime, in the in-between, in the pressure, are preparing you for the moments. So don't get frustrated when you got to fight a lion. Don't get frustrated when you got to fight a bear. God is developing strength in your inner person in those battles so that you'll be ready for what he's been preparing you for. And that's the conversation that we walked through. Verse 38 says, Saul then dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head and David fastened on his sword over the tunic and he tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. And he goes, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. You got to remember, why was Saul chosen to be the king? He was a big dude. Why was David not thought of to be the one that would be next? He was kind of the run of the litter. And so this comical scene of Saul saying, okay, if you're going to go, you need the best armor and the best sword. You can be my guy, put on my armor, put on my shield, put on my sword. And you can just imagine this young man like, I can't even lift these things. This isn't how I fight. This isn't how I do battle. 
And the heart and the purpose of this and the thing you should take away is David couldn't be a better Saul than Saul. He had to be the best David. And you can't be the best someone else. You have to be the best who God designed you to be. You have to live in your calling, your anointing, your strength, your design, your role in the kingdom of God and be comfortable in that lane. Verse 40 says, then he took off the staff. He took the staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. How cool is that? I don't need this armor and this sword. This isn't my jam. When I'm out there fighting the bears and the skills that I've developed, I was just a shepherd and I'm still the same guy. I'm still the same guy. There's a lot of questions in the scriptures that get asked, why five stones? I I don't know the answer to that. A lot of people have speculated on the number five and all the ideas of that. Here's what I think. That's how many fit in his bag. That's honestly what I think. I read it in five stones. I think that's what fit in his bag. And I think that's what he's used to walking around with. It's like, you know, if you, if you have a, a firearm and the magazine has six rounds, it has six rounds, right? You know, just slide one in and be like, I'm ready for battle. It's like, that's what it holds. That's his weapon of choice when he's out there protecting the sheep. And he puts five stones in because that's how many stones that he can carry comfortably. And I just think there's a question in there about, you know what, God, he doesn't know exactly what God's going to do, so he's just prepared the way he's normally prepared. And you don't know what God's going to do. So you just prepare the way you always prepare, the way you always get ready. What he's shaped and built in you while he was taking you through the battles and the struggles, just come with that, and that'll be sufficient. Verse 41, meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David, and he looked over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. Haters going to hate. Millennials, I just want you to know the older generation has been looking back at the younger generation and not liking them for as long as time has existed. It's not special to you. You're just carrying the same weight that us Gen Xers carried before you and that every group before you carried before them. The generation ahead of you just always looks back and goes, these little squirts, I can't believe them, right? And so we just didn't have social media so that everyone heard it every day over and over and over again. We love you millennials. We do. And whatever that next group is that's crazy, we love them too. And it's going to be on you to figure out how to love those guys better than I can because I just won't be able to do it. So he looks at this young, handsome dude, and he's like, I don't like that. I don't like that. Haters going to hate. And listen to his response to David. He goes, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He went right for his faith. He goes, your gods are weak if that's the best that they can do. Your gods are weak if you're, the, if you're the thing, the one that they called out to represent them. And this is the squeeze point for David's story. This is where the squeeze comes on, right? What's going to come out of David? Because it's all fine and dandy to stand before Saul and say, I got this. I'm not going to let that guy talk smack to the people of God. Like, it's all fine and dandy when you're walking among your brothers and and the other soldiers to kind of cheerlead. But now you're on the battlefield. And you don't got no armor. There's no helmet over your head. You got a staff and a bag of rocks and your faith. And Goliath was no joke. 
it's easy for us because we've heard the story and know the story to minimize the pressure of this moment. It's easy for us to minimize the weight of the situation. Goliath is a big, big dude. And this is stabby warfare where strength and size and, 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 and mass usually just wins. And here comes David and Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he curses him by his gods. And the squeeze is on, and he says, come here, and I'll give you the, your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. He's like, I'm just going to break you to pieces, leave you here, and the birds and the animals are going to eat you. That's pretty good smack talk. I played a lot of games at like 21 and basketball and stuff like that. It's never occurred to me to say, I'm going to leave your flesh on the ground and the birds and the animals are going to eat you. Like, like that's next level trash talk from Goliath, okay? That's the real deal. So David says to the Philistine, and this is what comes out of him in the squeeze. He says, you're coming against me with sword and spear and javelin. I don't know the difference between spears and javelins, but apparently Goliath is like loaded for bear, right? Like he's got everything. He's like, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the army of Israel's whom you have defied. He says, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down. Listen to David talking trash. I'll cut off your head this very day, I'll give the, carcasses of, uh, the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. So you, you, you talking about my mama? I'm going to talk about your mama, right? That's what he's saying. He's like, I'll give your, your birds, your flesh to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And he'll give all y'all into our hands. How does this come out of David? This is crazy. We have no indication that David is this guy until this point, right? And I'm telling you, the battles are important because that's when we find out what's on the inside. We have no indication that David is this guy. We know that the scripture said that God looked at him and said, that's the heart that I want, right? We know that he's not as big and good looking as, as his brothers, even though he's young and glowing with health, right? Like he, we know he's not the, the prime specimen even in his own family. We know he's a musician, He's probably artsy and, and, you know, he's out in the wood, in the fields, and he's like, la, 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 with a heart, right? Like, we know that's part of who he is. I'm punking the musicians because deep down in my core, the squeeze is on, and I wish I had any of the talent that any of our musicians have, right? Just like this much of it, I'd be so thrilled. It's just not fair, God. All right, anyways. <laughs> so David, we know that's like, we know that about him. That's what we know so far. We don't know this until the squeeze is on. We don't know that there is courage in him, that there is faith in him, that there is a tenacity for the things of God. We don't see any of that until the pressure comes on. And suddenly you see why he's been, while, that while he's been promoted and demoted, God has been working on his inner man. He's been promoted to work for Saul, demoted back to the sheep, promoted to be an armor bearer, demoted back to messenger boy. And through all of that, God's been working on the inner person of him. And what comes out of him when the pressure's on is this understanding of the will and the heart and the word of God. 
He's actually referencing, um, if you, you could do some research on this, I don't have time right now, but in Deuteronomy 20 and 28, also in Gideon's life, all of these phrases that he's talking about how God will hand over uh, uh, to, to uh, him in the battle, this reality, these are all things that are in the word of God. It's clear he has studied He's been out and worshiping God and he's been reading the law of God and he knows it in his heart and he knows that God has empowered other people to have this kind of faith and he's accepted that reality about God for himself. He knows the word of God. To wrap up the end of this part of the story, it just says as the Philistines moved closer to it, Philistine moved closer to attack him, it says David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Remember, he couldn't move when he had all the armor on. His speed and agility is gonna be an important piece here. And it says reaching into his bag, he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine in the forehead and the stone sank in his forehead and he fell face down on the ground, boom. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. And this is, and this is where the scriptures are. Um, you might want to plug the ears of the young ones here. But because uh, it's just true and it's historical and you want to understand what happened. It says David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword. He drew it from the sheath. Remember, this is a giant's sword. It's bigger than anything he would normally carry. And it says he drew it from the sheath. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And guess who fed the animals that night? Come on, somebody. What came out of David when the squeeze was on were the promises of God, the word of God, and a faith in the living God because he knew God. And that's what came out of him. And he spent time with God. Jesus models the exact same thing and, and uh, lives it the exact same way so that there is this cognitive consistency through the scriptures of how we handle pressure moments and battles and in-between times. Colossians, Paul says that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. It lives in us and it teaches us and admonishes us with all wisdom. And so we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that was really the life that David lived. He put the word of God in his heart and he sang songs and he praised God and it gave him power and authority that was greater than any of the physical things that were going on. But Jesus modeled this exact same thing. And if you have your finger over there, you can jump over to Matthew 4 and just quickly I'm going to recap a story that many of, of you know, but Jesus faced temptation and battle while he was in, the, in between just the same way. Matthew chapter four, it says that Jesus was led into the spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Matthew chapter four, verse one and two. And you know the story, Jesus' public ministry is about to start. John the Baptist has just baptized him like we just did. And, and, and this exciting moment happens. The Holy Spirit shows up. The voice of God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's like Jesus is officially on the scene. It is time to start his ministry. And, and he's been you know, preparing and getting ready to begin this journey that God's called him on, this very specific season of life and journey. Uh, and it's the end of the in-between. And there's a temptation and a battle and a fight that happens. And it says he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He's hungry. And then he's led out into the desert to have his face-to-face -face encounter with the enemy of our souls. We've talked about fasting for different times and seasons. And the real core, the heart behind fasting isn't about food. It's about denying your flesh, your body, something that it wants in order to give your attention and passion and decision and direction to Jesus 
and to be focused and to say, this thing is greater than this other thing. And so he's been in that season for 40 days, and I don't know if you've ever fasted for four hours, but you can get pretty cranky. At the end of 40 days, you're going to be weak. And here in this weakened state, uh, he faces this series of conversational tension points with the enemy. And we're going to hit them really quickly because I just want you to see the similarity between David's expression and Jesus' expression. Before I do that, I do want you to be clear and, and recognize there is some tension between when we're physically, emotionally weak and the battles that we face. We're susceptible in those moments. The squeeze is on. We haven't taken care of ourselves. We're not sleeping good. We're frustrated. There's physical realities that tie into spiritual truth because we are whole people, body, soul, and spirit. And Jesus is demonstrating that though he has denied his flesh for this season, there is the inner man is still strong. Verse 3 says, the tempter came to him and said, um, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, there's a fascinating way to tempt somebody because it does imply that he does have the authority to do this. And it's not a sin to be hungry, nor is it a sin for Jesus to tell these stones to become bread. But what Satan is really attacking is, why isn't the God you worship taking care of you? Why don't you remember this? Manhandle this vision. Manhandle this process. You have the ability. Demonstrate that you can just do the thing without God's help, on your own. Use your authority and manhandle the plan of God. And Jesus answers, um, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, it, 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 the scriptures, the promises of God tell me that my physical needs are secondary to my spiritual needs and that if I don't take care of my spiritual needs, all the physical taken care of in the world is going to leave me empty and a shell of myself and weak and I won't accept that weakness. And I love this picture of Jesus who <laughs> literally is the living incarnate word of God referencing the written word of God. And we know that Jesus studied and we know that he spent time with the word and that he was fully human and he spent time with the word of God. And so he quotes the word of God to the devil and says, hey, you're trying to tempt me, but you can't tempt me because I understand the promises of God and that's what's in the inside of me. So the devil took him to the holy city and he had to stand at the highest point of the temple and he says, well, if you are the son of God, which he's already kind of acknowledged by saying you could probably turn stones to bread. He goes, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself down for it is written. Here's the enemy saying, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna quote scripture. It is written. He'll command his angels concerning you and they'll lift you up your hands so that you won't strike your foot against the stone. It's the scripture of Psalm 91. We're gonna dive into that a little bit next week probably. But, uh, but he says, if you're gonna go by what's written, then, then just jump off a high building and you'll be fine. If you really believe it, and Jesus answered, it's also written, don't put the Lord God to your test, to the test. And I love that Satan attempts to use the Bible against Jesus. And I just want to be honest for a, a moment here. In church world and Christian world, we butcher the scriptures to say whatever we want all the time. And it's a, I mean, like my favorite one, I, I heard a pastor do this just as a, as a funny joke, but you can make the scriptures say anything. You can literally make the scripture say that Moses played tennis. He served in Pharaoh's court. It's in the scripture. Moses is a tennis player. 
Do you know how ridiculous that is? Why do you know that's ridiculous? Because you know that tennis, one, didn't exist back then, and you know, two, that that's not what the scripture's talking about. It's out of context. It is no less ridiculous for Satan to say, climb up on a building and jump off, because that's not what's happening in Psalm 91. Yet we fall into the trap time and time again of misquoting misrepresenting the scripture because we don't understand the context and we fall hook, line, and sinker for the lies of the enemy because we're not sure what the heck it even says. Can I say heck in church? So Jesus demonstrates that when the squeeze is on and the pressure is on, not only does he have the word of God in his heart, he actually understands the context, has some sense of it. He has some sense, and I, if I can just be honest with you, the, the, the entire journey of just walking through stories in the scriptures, if there's anything I hope that has come out uh, in, in these moments that we've had together, is that every story that's in here, every life-giving account of the will and the word of God is part of the great story of who God is and can be understood as much as it can be in the context of the person who's living in it. They're real stories. And I want you to have a heart to see that. So is throwing yourself off a building wise because someone misquotes Psalm 91? No, don't do it. It's crazy. Don't fall for ridiculous misquoting interpretations of the scripture. And then finally it says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said, all this I'll give to you if you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to me, said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It says, then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. And Satan always wants to convince us to shortcut the plan and take the easy way. Jesus knew eventually that he'd have an eternal kingdom, a never-ending kingdom, that he'd be sitting on the throne and that he's going to have to go through some hard season to get there. And the devil's plan was just to get you to shortcut the season. Don't go through the pain. Don't go through the process. Get out of the squeeze early. You can avoid the cross, death. You can avoid all of the pain and the rejection. Just sell out for me and give up on the plan of God. And Jesus responds to him, get away from me. And he goes back to the scripture and says, worship the Lord your God. It's written and serve him only. Why does he go back to that? Because the greatest source we have to fill our inner person with the character and the nature of God is the word of God. And guys, I don't know how many more chances I have to try to plead with you, but if you aren't filling your heart and your life with the word of God, then what's on the inside of you? Come on now, what's on the inside of you isn't going to be shaped into the heart and design and the plan of God. That's how we do that inner work. Some of you are good at cardio, for which I resent. That's the inner, Right? But if you don't do that work, then those organs aren't strong. Come on now, your lungs are weak and you can't do it. And, and just the same way, if you don't do the work of getting in the word of God, then your core and your inner man is weakened significantly. And when the squeeze and the pressure and the pain is on, what comes out of you won't be, won't be what you want to see. And so David under pressure comes into this point. And Jesus under pressure models this point. And, and it's funny, the enemy just wants you to compromise, just lie, cheat, still, and give up, just shortcut the process. And Jesus gives him the, nah, bro. Here's what I want you to catch. Jesus defeated the devil in the wilderness 
just to show that it could be done, he did it in the weakest human condition imaginable. Just to show that it could be done. He fasted for 40 days and for 40 nights. He put himself into the weakest position that he possibly could and then demonstrated if what's on the inside of you is the heart and the will of God, then you can stand no matter how weak you are on the outside. My prayer is that encourages you in this season. It strengthens you. I pray that it gives you a hunger for the word of God. I pray that it gives you a desire to just start somewhere. Start in the book of John, read a chapter a day, and begin to feed your heart and soul on the inside. So no matter how weak you get on the outside, when the squeeze is on, you'll stand up and you'll stand true. Let's pray. Jesus. I love you. We love you. We thank you. Thanks for your word. Thanks for, uh, God, the psalmist writes, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you because it strengthens us. It encourages us. It helps us to live free. Even though we declare the moment of, uh, at water baptism, who we are is new and in you. We feed and strengthen that spiritual man by the word of God, and it grows us. It, it, it feeds us when we come to church and we hear it. It feeds us when we're at home and we live it out and we, and we have to experience it. And I just pray, God, that when the battle and the pressure and the squeeze is on, just like lemons give us lemonades, followers of Jesus give us the expression in the heart of Jesus. I pray that's what would come out of us. I pray for, and I, I know this is silly, but I just pray that there would be cars getting prayed for on Meridian because when they did their idiotic thing, the heart of the follower of Jesus in the car behind would catch themselves and say, Jesus, that person needs your help. More than I need to speak a curse on them, I need to speak a blessing. I pray in our homes and in our work situations and in our relationships and in our family and in our pressure points, even in our financial decisions, we would have a heart that says, we trust you, we need you, and we want your heart and life to come out of us. Fill us with your power, your spirit, and your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.